1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast, the first of the new year. My name's Sam Leith, I'm the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm going to be joined by two writers and critics, who are Dorian Linsky, the author of The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, and DJ Taylor, whose books include On 1984, a biography of George Orwell's masterpiece, so two 1984ists. And it's appropriate this week because George Orwell has at long last come out of copyright, and we're going to see the market flooded with all sorts of Orwelliana and hopefully cheap but rigorous editions of his work. Welcome, both. I suppose to start, say, you've both written about 1984. That's the thing most people think of when they think of Orwell, first of all. Is that kind of the core of his work? I mean, you know what's what's the important thing about Orwell these days?
0: I think that the problem is, and I'm sure Dorian would agree with that, with this one, is that we now tend to see Orwell's career. Given that he died so quickly after the completion of 1984, we do tend to see it as you know a form of teleology. You start with 1984, and then you work backwards, and all the paving stones which led along the path to 1984 then spring up. But the other thing about Orwell, of course, is that if he died, say, well, at any time up until you, including the Second World War, I think we would have regarded him as an interesting minor writer. You know, there's a whole heap of stuff, thousands and thousands of words six or seven volumes that precede Animal Farm, which was the book that really made his reputation. And one of the wonderful things about him, and I've recently been rediscovering this, you know, with current work on Orwell, is that it all shapes up, unlike many a major writer, inverted commas, Homer never nods with Orwell. You can pick up a tiny fragment of his journalism written, say, at the height of the Blitz, typed straight onto a typewriter, and there's always something there. There's always something interesting. He's never just doing it for the money, as, say, Evelyn Ward did. You know, if you read some of Evelyn, Evelyn Ward's early journalism, it's pretty dreadful. And there are letters from his agent apologising to magazine editors that I'm afraid Evelyn wasn't really, you know, on the case. Orwell never did that. Everything was serious, even the tiny review for Tribune that he wasn't getting paid for. So I always find, and there's so much more to him there than, than that that sort of forced march through the early work that leads to 1984
2: but I think maybe what is what makes him interesting I suppose is the fact that he had these uh, abiding obsessions all of which feed into 1984 in some way like he didn't really understand cinema or theatre but as a freelance journalist and I can identify you know if somebody asks you to be the uh, cinema or theatre reviewer of a small magazine uh for any money at all you go yes you know I'll give it a shot but what makes those reviews worth reading even though he's usually wrong about film and has real you no know, interest in kind of like say screen acting or or where you put the camera is he sort of going, well, what does this say about sort of totalitarianism? What does this say about England? What does this say about cruelty? And so it's the fact that he has these ideas that he's sort of exploring in all of these different arenas and almost without 1984 to sort of make sense of them. It might make sort of less sense. It was like, well, why does he keep bringing these ideas into sometimes reviews where they don't really belong? And I think it is because he's, he's constantly working through something. And that's why 1984 It would have been such a sort of tragedy, even if he'd lived to become the man that wrote Animal Farm. If he hadn't written 1984 and a way that could weave together everything from his sort of big theories of totalitarianism to his sort of love of junk shops and the countryside, that you maybe wouldn't have the sort of the glue that really holds together what, what otherwise might seem like quite sort of disparate work.
1: What you say, Dorian, there is that it suggests that there was, if not a monomania, at least there were, there were a small core of preoccupations yeah. that were the things he was interested in and that that was quite narrow. I mean, was, was he that narrow? Did he have a sort of very small... Palette.
0: I, no, I, I, I don't agree. I I think he had a very wide palette, but I think Dorian's point about 1984 being the magnet that draws what might look on the surface to be quite a lot of disparate material together is a very good one. And it's also interesting how he begins, I think, to reframe elements of his early life through the perspective of, of what became 1984 as he goes on living it. I mean, I know, Sam, you've written about um, Such, Such Were the Joys, the famous essay about his prep school experiences and it has to be said that countless writers wrote about you know what had happened to them at prep school during the time of the great war and none of them had it quite so badly as Orwell and there's this great debate which has been going on for years as to when he actually wrote such such with the joys you know did it precede 1984 was it written during 1984 but whatever, on whichever side of that fence you come down, you have to accept, I think, that there's a relationship between that essay and the novel. And in whatever form, Orwell is recasting what he thought about his prep school through the point, you know, the, the view of a totalitarian society.
2: I think he had, I suppose, I'll take the third way here, i go that I, it wasn't that he had a sort of narrow range of preoccupations. I think they were quite broad, but he definitely had a firm line between things he was interested in and things he wasn't. And I think there's a really nice quote from, I think, Anthony Pohl, going that, just in conversation with Orwell, he said, if the, if a subject came up that didn't interest him, he would refuse it like a horse refusing a sugar lump. And it was just a sort of, the, 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 he, there was a cut off. And you can see this in sort of Orwell's writing, that there's just certain things where he's like, I'm not interested in this. And yet I'm going to bring it round to what does interest me, And somehow then sometimes you get, therefore, something much more interesting. So when he's writing about Dali, he's not an art critic. He's not particularly interested in visual art, but he's fascinated by the personality of the artist and, and, and whether being an appalling person invalidates the art, which makes his essay on Dali this incredibly enduring and relevant essay on how he decided to assess the art versus the morality of the artist. And it's sort of far more enduring than perhaps if, he'd, if it was just a wonderful bit of, uh, of art criticism.
0: It's exactly the same, I think, with what he had to say about sport. Not in the least interested about sport, except as he once said he had a kind of hopeless love affair with cricket. When he was at school. So when he gets to write a review, you know the review of Edmund Blunden's *Cricket Country*, written during the Second World War, and it's not really uh, the review has nothing really to do with the sport. It's it's it tests out Orwell's ideas about democracy as reflected through sport. And so he says that whatever you may say about cricket, it's not actually an upper class thing. It's a democratic sport. It takes at least. 23 people to play it on a cricket pitch and there has to be some sort of social interaction. And he says that golf is the snobbish sport. Golf is the class sport that's taking over vast acreages of the British countryside. So again, it's, it's cricket refracted through his own particular political, ideological focus.
1: There's a bit of a sort of chicken and egg question here, which is you know, you're talking about how these sort of ideological and um, political preoccupations informed his worldview. But when you're talking about, for instance, such, such were the days, you know, that question of how he was seeing it through a totalitarian lens, is it, and there is a question, and I know, David, when I spoke to you about such, such were the days, you said, actually, most of what he wrote in that was kind of bollocks, that he exaggerated (laughs) massively to fit it into this preoccupation. Is it that somehow his views on totalitarianism came out of a horrible prep school childhood, Or did he retcon the childhood to fit into his views of totalitarianism? I'm I'm curious really about what what it was that turned sort of Eric Blair into George Orwell. Where these preoccupations came from?
2: I mean it's it's a very it's a very strange one because it's it's not one or the other. And so, for example, if you read Burmese Days, there's a description of the persecution of, of of a man in Burma, and it's. He's describing it. And this is before I was writing this before he was particularly uh, interested in sort of um, Soviet history and long before he was sort of thinking about 1984. And yet it sounds exactly like the way that somebody would be treated in 1984 and the way that sort of Goldstein or in in the book or Trotsky in real life. And it just seems like this was obviously something that he had observed in Burma, this way of... um, the way that people lived was a form of double think there, the way that certain people would be sort of cruelly defamed in a sort of, you know, version of the two minute hate. And so this was obviously something he had genuinely observed. And then you always think, well, it almost reads as if he'd sort of retconned a bit, but, but he hadn't. And so with Such, Such Were the Joys, you've got this strange mixture of, I think, some genuine memories and a genuine feeling of sort of fear. Uh, and I've interviewed like a a, pro, you know, a punk musician and he said, well, the first thing you protest against before you protest against the government is your parents and your school. And so there is there. It's a very so it's very easy to see that experience of a public school, I think, of a brutalising public school through a political lens. And so that's why David said this can never really be resolved because it's sort of it's obviously being written in around the same time as 1984. So it's sort of coloured by that. It doesn't mean everything in there is a lie, but it affects the language that he uses. And then you hear these weird echoes of that language in 1984, where I think there's a kind of, I think it was one of the bits in the draft that didn't make it into the final novel. But he's describing one of the, the people in the Ministry of Love, Parsons, I think, as like a schoolboy awaiting a caning.
0: In this, exactly the same way as that O'Brien is described as either like a priest or a schoolmaster, isn't he? It's mm. exactly the same. I think the, the point you were making just there about Burmese days is a good one because I've always noticed the number of times in his writings where Orwell specifically sets down and addresses incidents from his early life is relatively small. And in fact, his friends remember that he very, he would never really talk about Burma or Paris. He would just sort of say conventional things like, of course, you know, in Paris, one travels on the Metro to, to such and such and so forth. But what he does do, he had this unerring eye for sort of seeing a significant incident of vast symbolic metaphorical significance that he could then use 20 years later. I mean, for example, he says hardly anything about his time in Burma, but he does remember the incident on the ship, you know, where he sees a fellow passenger kicking a coolie. And he does remember seeing the, the quartermaster stealing the dessert, you know, and carrying it back to his quarters. And you, you get the feeling that he kind of hoarded these things in his consciousness for future use, that he knew even at the time that they would come in useful for some sort of subsequent exploration when he came down to write seriously about these things.
2: Well, yeah, because he spent one, one night in his life in a cell and he remembered a broken toilet and the broken toilet appears in the cell in 1984 and it's
0: which which he could which of course was exactly the sort of thing he would have remembered because of this extraordinary fastidiousness you know that encouraged yeah, john yeah. sutherland to write a whole book about orwell's sense of smell and his kind of kind of pathological urges that drew him there
1: yeah do you think there's a sense in which his importance as a sort of ideological seer or an analyst of totalitarianism or an allegorist of political situations, has kind of eclipsed and scanted his literary qualities. Does he get sort of overlooked qua writer because he's seen so much as a prophet? The problem is
0: it's much worse than that, I think, actually, Sam. Um, He's become a kind of you know, to use the technical term, he's become a floating signifier. He can prove anything. He can be brought in to judge any situation. He is the man you go for, for any kind of wider political comment. But it is interesting. I mean, I've just, as you mentioned earlier in your preamble, this this great tide of reissues, which is now going to overtake us and you know, the repackaging of Orwell which will be conducted on a merciless scale and I, you know, I hold up my own hand because I'm involved in it myself <laughs> but it's very interesting that hardly anybody, most of the things that are being reissued, the, the, the principal reissues are 1984 and on Animal Farm and as far as I know only two people are going to be bothered to reissue you know, clergyman's daughter with, with notes. For some reason those early novels and in fact Alexander Larman who writes that blog for The Critic was on Twitter only yesterday uh, you know saying here are these four early works uh, which are comparatively unknown and pretty much underrated that all have good things in them irrespective of you know the building blocks in the wall of 1984 and it, we we do I think you know there are whole loads there's loads, loads of Orwelliana out there that we do I think sort of slightly o- overlook and
2: I mean it's tricky I think because he is a sort of he is quite a limited novelist, and you you have to think like like David saying say he dies before 90, before Animal Farm. You know how do we assess those novels? And we probably are going to sort of say, oh, there's lots of interesting ideas, but but not many sort of fully realised characters. A lot of just kind of vehicles for the author's own opinions, and so it means that they are they are good, but he. I think Orwell wanted... He always had this sort of weird fantasy that if it wasn't for war and totalitarianism and all the awful things happening around him, he would just be a proper novelist and a poet. An aesthetic, an aesthetic. Yeah. An aesthetic, a proper aesthetic. And it's it's just bizarre because he didn't have that pure talent. He didn't have an art-for-art's-sake talent. He wasn't this sort of wonderful, naturally wonderful novelist. And actually his talent was for dealing with the world around him. And he does that in those early novels as well.
0: But have you noticed, Dorian, how the style changes? About midway through the 1930s, he starts. I mean, Burmese days is full of these extraordinary rococo flourishes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to, you know, they're almost art for art's sake. 1890s kind of, you know, the moon like a dying, you know, this this kind of thing. And it goes as far as it goes as far as the first part of uh, keep the Aspidistra flying. I think there's a moment in the first chapter where he describes the tra- a tram as gliding like a like a raucous swan on a you know steel that that sort of thing. a raucous swan of steel. And then after that, it all calms down and he starts writing more sort of matter of factly and, and forgets all this sort of this, this aesthetic stuff. But I think he had a real struggle to kind of coax himself into what we regard now as the pure Orwell style.
2: I, I think the problem is that when we talk about what, what Orwell represents is that, that it's not even just based on 1984. A lot of the time, it's based on a sort of misunderstanding of 1984. And I I, I, mean, I know that my, one of my ambitions in writing the book uh, and maybe David's with, with his as well was really just to sort of explain how rich, you know, 1984 is, how many, ide- how many other things that you might need to know to fully understand sort of what he was getting at, the literary qualities of it. That, that, that I've read a lot of utopias and dystopias that are essentially essays in which just characters just wander around explaining things to each other. That's not what 1984 is. And so there is a, a great deal of literary craft in that there is a love story, and a very unusual one, is that there's a kind of spy plot that isn't quite sort of carried through, but, yeah, there's swapped briefcases and a kind of a shocking betrayal. It's like he did really make quite a lot of effort to make it a, a readable book, you know, as, of course, even more so with Animal Farm. You know, there was enormous effort to... Make these ideas that that kind of animated him that he thought were really important to make them accessible to a reader in a way that a, a lot of his contemporaries just didn't didn't bother. It was simply like here here are your ideas here are my ideas eat your greens the sort of the sort of mid mid period H. G. Wells approach. So
0: one question I want to ask you though is I mean you can see him one of the, one of the there were two reasons I think why it took so long to write one because he wasn't well the other one because he had constantly trying to fit new things that he'd thought about and new aspects of this totalitarian world into the book. But he, even so, he still thought, I mean, I mean, Orwell typically never liked what he'd written once it was finished. He still thought he'd made a mess of it, that it wasn't quite right, that it could have been better. What sort of book do you think it would have been, Dorian, if he'd lived another two or three years? If he'd had time to properly do it in the way that he thought that he wanted to do? Would it have differed substantially? Given that he spent six years on it, you know, from conception yeah. to, to publication, which is a long, long time
2: for Orwell. What do you think would have happened had he... The only criticism... Well, the main criticism I can think that he made of himself, of, of of the book, was that he sort of agreed with Julian Simons that... Uh, he was like a friend who also reviewed the book uh, quite critically. He said he agreed that the kind of... The, the The final bit in The Ministry of Love was a bit too melodramatic. And I think, so probably he would have tried to... Uh, But then, of course, that's one of the things that kind of shocks and engages readers so much. So I don't know whether it would have made it better, but I think he would have tried to lower the melodrama there. And but then the other bit, I suppose, that most readers would go, you know, this could be improved is the huge section of Goldstein's book. Is there a way of incorporating that information into the text in a kind of more sort of In a smoother, more digestible way
0: It's quite interesting though, isn't it In What, what Goldstein tells us about the characters Because I, I had my first suspicions of Julia When she falls asleep listening to it and I thought, you know, a real someone, a real rebel Someone who was real up for the revolution Would have managed to stay awake Listening to the masterpiece of <laughs>
2: Goldstein I mean, I, I like that bit But I think but then I don't know if Orwell wanted, would would have wanted to change that because from what I can understand, it was that was almost the first bit of the book that he wrote mm. because he was so, he thought it was so important. So I think maybe that what Orwell wanted to change is not what a reader might think that he wanted to change.
1: Do you think Animal Farm holds up? I mean, I was just remembering the notorious rejection that Animal Farm got, which more or less said, you know, what Eudorian was saying, other utopias have. I mean, I think it said something like, it's just a series of ideas about communist Russia, Stalin's Russia, and it's you know, dull as ditch water.
2: Was that just massively off-beam, do you think? Well, I can say my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's 14, has just been studying it, so I was able to make myself useful and go, oh, you might want to mention the Kronstadt rebellion. <laughs> uh, get, a, get, a, get an edge on the, uh, on the others. She found it enthralling. She found it really moving, really pacey, really complex... And that is a book that is far more complex than than you think when you first read it. I mean, some the resonance of some of the kind of language, the the, the very dry humor. There's there's a lot going on in there, and so I think that I mean that I would say is something that that that, that you could say holds up even better. I think it's it's a closer to far closer to perfection than 1984. Like what makes 1984 so interesting is that it it's kind of thorny and messy, whereas Animal Farm is somebody going. This is what I want to do. Sitting down, three months later, he's done it.
0: Yeah. The other thing too, and the great thing about an Animal Farm, I find, and this is from the biographical point of view, is how much it's it's actually a disguised love letter, I think, to the Oxfordshire of Orwell's childhood. Because if you start looking at the farm and working out how it functions, you realize it's almost entirely unrecognised. You know, you there the um, Farmer Jones and his wife have the, the lithograph of Queen Victoria up in the front room. Even the papers the pigs start taking in a kind of Great War, you know the Daily Mirror and John Bull and this kind of thing. So in other words, the atmosphere of the book is at least thirty, if not forty years behind the time when it's you know, it, it comes to an end in nineteen sort of forty three time. So it's a very it 's a very kind it 's a very disguised autobiography as well I think no I agree with you it's wonderful wonderful piece of work which I would have thought you know most modern teenagers could find something to approve of in
2: well that 's the basic thing that it's it's moving and it 's enthralling even if you don't know the allegories and that that's what 's incredible that you can you can sort of scrutinize it and go, well, this is clearly a reference to this pact or this conference or this this rebellion. And yet, the point people are still moved when Boxer dies. They don't think... They're not moved by the allegory for the betrayal of the sort of proletariat. They're moved because a because a horse dies, and to do, to to be able to operate on those two levels, I, I don't really I can't think of anything else that sort of does that.
0: No, and in fact Orwell was delighted. I because one of the first readers was his friend Anthony Pohl's um, nephew Ferdinand Mount. Ferdinand Mount, who was then a boy of six, and who said you know, Orwell was delighted when he said that Ferdie had liked it because it had no long words in it. <laughs> you know, and as a six-year-old, he could just blast straight through. So God, I hadn't known that.
1: <laughs> Fantastic detail. David, that point you make, I want to pick up on the, the, the nostalgia for the sort of rural England. I mean, there are sort of, there's a strand in Orwell to do with the love of, you know, with a sort of patriotism, a love of, you know, old pubs and junk shops and all that, that seems ordinarily now we'd associate it with a conservative point of view. I mean, to what extent was Orwell a Conservative? Because obviously he was a man of the left.
0: Oh, so obviously a man of the left. But I, I tend to agree. I can't remember who. Cyril Connolly said that he was steeped in the worst illusions of 1910. And I think you have to agree to a certain extent with that. I also quite inclined to the... Uh, well, this is apparently... It's said of him that he was a Conservative in everything but politics. But then, of course, you could argue that as politics infect absolutely everything, then this is a, this is a meaningless comment. But... I have noticed, you know, going through the the, the collected works recently, how often he, re- I mean, I was just been reading his work, I, I was reading recently his essays, his work about H.G. Wells, and the thing that he keeps on praising Wells about is his ability to convey that kind of lost Edwardian England of security and solemnity and prosperity, and he's always going back there, and it, it's noticeable even in Anthony Burgess's 1985, you know, Burgess's take on 1984, and um, one of the points that Burgess makes, which is a very good one, is how much of the imagery is rural. You know, even when something is said as an urban setting, he's always describing something to, you know, a wheat stoop pushed to one side or something like that. So I, it, he's, he's kind of go, his, his his low, in some ways, The Orwell Locus Classicus is back there in Henley-on-Thames in the early years of the 20th century.
2: Well, there's an amazing uh, amazing letter that Eileen Blair, his first wife, sent a friend just around the time that Orwell was writing The Lion and the Unicorn, which is his kind of argument for sort of socialist patriotism and I can't remember the exact words, but she says something, goes, uh, George has written, or Eric, I can't remember how she refers to him in this, has written a little book about how to be a socialist though Tory.
0: That's it, I remember it, yeah.
2: Which, Which is so funny. And really, sort of sums it up. And I think he's quite. I think particularly, coming up for air is the really interesting book about nostalgia, where he he sort of admits that there's lots of ways in which the Edwardian world was uh, worse. And he goes, it was worse for workers, and it was worse for women. And it's not that you want to go back there. He says, but what they had that we don't have is that they didn't live in fear. And I think that Orwell's nostalgia, even though obviously there's the, yeah, you know, there's a personal dimension, hugely personal dimension to that. But I think it's sort of I felt that it was justified in a way that if you were in in right now, the time we're living in, to feel nostalgic is not reactionary. It's quite legitimate. Of course, you miss a time before a pandemic. <laughs> That's fine. And so, so Orwell's nostalgia is against the backdrop of a time where where most people, uh, at least until the end of the war and the kind of post-war Labour government, but during the kind of late '30s and and the and the war, most people would would say no, that like the past was better. <laughs> because we did not have Hitler and Stalin and all that. And so his sort of, and coming up for air is a great kind of, it's almost a great sort of defense of nostalgia as something that isn't necessarily reactionary and that you can look back to the past and go, okay, it was worse in that way, but it was better in that way. And what he felt was that the time that he lived in was so full of kind of fear and hatred that it was dehumanizing. And I think he thought there was something very human about that t- time.
0: He he makes the same point, doesn't he, writing about the early Victorian novelists, writing about Dickens and Thackeray. I mean, his point there is, in some ways, this was a terrible world. It was a world before social security and proper medicine and so forth. But there was a liveliness and a vigour about it that's reflected in the fiction of the time that we don't have now. I'm very conscious of that, reading his essay about Dickens and also uh, Oysters and Brown Stout, that wonderful essay about Thackeray as well, written for Tribune in the 1940s.
1: That issue of him being a floating signifier, I wonder, he's become... You know, as you say, you know, only I think in the last 24 hours, the abject Josh Hawley having had a <laughs> yeah. contract yeah, canceled yeah. by Simon Schuster for cheering on the, the Capitol rioters tweeted, you know, this could not be more Orwellian, you know, which is has has that sort of sense in which he's now available for everybody, wherever they are ideologically to say this is Orwellian. Does that sort of defang it a bit?
0: It's it's just an inevitable thing that happens. A journalist was asking me yesterday, you know, how or in what way this great tide of Orwell reissues and repackaging differs from, say, Dickens coming out of copyright or, you know, another major novelist coming out of copyright. And the difference is, of course, that we live in a world of endlessly proliferating media where there are so many new platforms for this to be exploited that it is a completely different thing. You know, there's a video game of Animal Farm launched a couple of weeks ago. There's going to be all sorts of films and adaptations and probably stage view, and there's nothing that, you know, there's nothing the estate can do about it. There's nothing that anybody can go and do about it. It's just all going to be out there and it's going to have to be sifted and assimilated in a way that I don't think has happened with any previous major writer, simply because the media climate has changed so much.
2: Um, what, I mean, one of one sessions, I think, is the way that, is how far back this attempt that, that basically the only people, the only faction that I could tell... That just decided to reject Orwell was the kind of hard left. You, the Stalinists at the time. They're still doing it. The descendants of the Stalinists. Well, I don't know if you uh, see that. There's a, that
0: that American, so John Newsinger wrote a marvellous review. I think both your book and my book together in something like the Socialist Review, where I think they were two of the worst books that ever been written written in the history of the world, or something like that. Amazing. But you're right. They've never they've never forgiven him, have they? The um... no.
2: Uh, but apart from them, everybody else wanted to claim them. So one of the things that I came across in research was that in the 60s, you had both the Black Panthers and the John Birch Society using 1984. And so it's something that and I realised that, you know, you, you really can't do anything about it. The only I limit myself to, to, to calling out uh, fake quotes because a lot of fake quotes that go around in kind of meme form. And I do think that if you're going to claim Orwell, you should at least claim things that he actually said.
0: Just, just as, as a footnote, the only journalist or commissioning editor that I've ever had dealings with who seemed suspicious of Orwell, and this is 20 years ago, was Seamus Mill, <laughs> who I think uttered the words Weasley Little Trotskyite.
2: Well, they still, and they still, you still get the, the, the sort of tankies uh, on, on Twitter calling him a snitch. Mm, the
0: list, people get furious about the list, don't they?
2: What was the b- bottom line on the list? I- could never get
0: very up worked up about the list I mean Orwell had been asked by a friend who worked at the uh, Foreign Officers IRD Bureau to to come up with some names of people who wouldn't be suitable for writing propaganda pamphlets for uh, free countries in Eastern Europe that were about to be swallowed up by you know the communist predator uh, and it's a mark of how dodgy the whole thing was in that the man sitting at the desk next to Celia Kerwin who asked Orwell to do this was Guy Burgess you know that's how infiltrated the uh, the the Foreign Office had been in 1940. So I can't get very worked up about the list. I don't know what Dorian thinks.
2: I think my sort of conclusion was that the great problem with it was that the story was shaped by information sort of leaking out in the wrong order, and that sort of in the 90s the existence of the list was was learned, I think, and then the first version that was published was the version in his notebook, which was entirely private. It was it was sort of very it was bitchy, and sometimes inaccurate. Um, and that for a few for a few years, I think for about four or five years, that was the version that people thought. Okay, well, he just sent this to the IRD, and then a few years later, Celia Kerman died, and they found and the, it upstairs, at, didn't
0: they? The, yeah, the yeah, actual
2: yeah. letter was discovered, and uh, and also there are letters to, um, I think, to David Astor, which which show his sort of process where he was going. Well, look, I'm not going to send her this big baggy list of. You know, sort of personal grievances, it's really important to work out who is genuinely, who I just don't like, and who is genuinely kind of dangerous and should mm. not be used for this specific mm. task. And so the actual letter leaves out almost everything that people got agitated about in the late 90s.
0: From the private correspondence.
2: Yeah, the narrative was then set up, but actually you you see the lengths he went to, to to be like, I want to be accurate and all the names that he didn't put on there and all the ways he tried to think, you know, and and as, as David says, the whole point was just like, don't use, don't use these people. Not like destroy their careers, and in fact, nobody's career was
0: nobody's contract was well. cancelled, were they? I mean, no, no, nobody was cancelled as a result of uh, no, uh, no, exactly,
2: because it was a private sort of thing. So I think it was the way it leaked out, and I think the thing is, it was the it was the it's not a smoking gun, but I think it was what people that had hated Orwell for decades really needed. They were like, this is the proof that he was a McCarthyite, and of course, it, it was like nothing of the sort, but it's the best, it's the firmest evidence they have. That Orwell was a rotter, you know,
1: so they're going to use it. Actually, that, that mention of the wartime propaganda department, it's like it was the only Orwell story. I've, I went to interview George Weidenfeld before he died, and he worked in that same department. He said, Oh, I worked really? alongside, you know, down the corridor from George Orwell. And I said, Oh, God, you worked with Orwell. What was he like? And he said, Oh, he was a bit of a pest. You know, I had this publishing concern, and he was constantly asking me to publish this. Essay of his, and I told him, you know, get bent, George. We're not doing it. I said, what was the essay? And he said, oh, it's called Politics in the English Language. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, that essay obviously is is one of the, you know, sort of, not directly anti anti totalitarian or political touchstones. And I'm wondering how, particularly in light of as you say, David, he completely changed his writing style to the plainness. That's, you know, because people sort of use one half of that essay to talk about, you know, giving substance to to lies using euphemistic language. And then they take those sort of rules. And, you know, any number of hashtag am writing people will say, well, you know, Orwell's a great star guard You have to follow Orwell's rules. Here's. No, well, I I
0: think those rules can be taken too far. Actually, I mean, all the I think he he went too Orwell's you know, the plain the plain man idea. I think is is in some ways completely wrong because I mean, for good prose is like a window pane. Well, no, it isn't. I can think of loads of writers who are really excellent by my criteria who don't write prose like a window pane, and some writers that Orwell admired. Who, write, who, who wrote prose that wasn't like, who had a certain degree of opacity that you had to get through. And then there's the not using the double negative. I think he's wrong about that as well. You know, he said he, 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 there's that famous sentence where he said, if you ever think the double negative is a good idea, try starting the sentence with a a not unbrown dog was running over a not ungreen field without realizing that sometimes, you know, um, by describing somebody as, you know, not wholly charmless you can convey about a paragraph's worth of meaning in a few words. I, th- I think he kind of, you know, probably took that, one, that, took that line a bit too far.
2: But he put a gag in it. The the thing is, he the, there's a gag at the end. He goes, break any of these rules. Oh, yeah, yeah. Than yeah right anything, you know, what, how right it's right going garbage. to work. Yeah, exactly. And so the idea that people would take it as rules, when in a sense he's sort of, sort of being tongue-in-cheek about these prescriptions. But I, could I just make a quick point about what you were saying about the, how, how Weidenfeld kept rejecting this essay? What's amazing is how much of the really important stuff that he wrote was written kind of on a random commission like Why I Write, which is one of the most important essays. I didn't realise was it was a very short-lived literary magazine and it was meant to be a regular feature where each we- each issue, certainly wasn't each week, so each issue a different writer would answer the question Why I Write. So it wasn't like Orwell sat down to to do this. He was asked to do it. And looking back on the Spanish War... The, mo- the stuff that's most quoted in, re- in reference to Trump or Putin or fake, fake news or whatever Was cut out by Alex Comfort because the essay was too long It's the most important section I last saw it quoted in the movie Spider-Man Far From Home <laughs> Because it's become that important as a point about organised lying and it didn't even appear in, in, in print until his lifetime. And so, so many of these things that we think as very important essays, when magazines that you've never heard of, they were, uh, you know, they or they weren't published in his lifetime, or they're only taken on by somebody after they've been rejected by somebody else. And I find that so fascinating, the gap between how highly, how we venerate these essays like, like those, like Politics in the English Language, and actually the kind of the really kind of tough time he had as a freelancer.
0: Piecemeal, yeah. meal ready, Met ready, ready. As a footnote, by the way, to that, did you know that he was he's quoted in Soul about the Disney, the new Disney movie that started streaming on Boxing Day, and they get the quote and they get the quote wrong. It's from Keep the Aspen to Flying, and somebody says, uh, "As Orwell said, public public education is the last rattling of the swill bucket." And in fact, it was advertising was the last rattling of the swill bucket. So, I mean, interesting that it
1: should be. I been, did
2: say yes, yes, yeah, I yeah, yeah. About And that. it's wrong; yeah. right, it's
1: inaccurate. You know, shame on
2: Soul. We should cancel it. Otherwise,
1: a good film, I thought.
2: And I like the idea that Orwell was one of the advisors, wasn't he? Like in the, in the Other World, to teach people how to be human. I think he'd quite like that. Do you think his sort of moral clairvoyance? Kind of
1: holds up. I mean, he's held as this sort of great, you know, anti-totalitarian and you know the last word on how totalitarianism works. Was he as a reliable in all respects, or were there aspects in which you just go, ah, Christ, you got that wrong?
0: Um, it's amazing how many of the warnings in 1984 turn out to have been right. I mean, even Hitchens I and mean, Peter Davison once made a once sent me an extensive list of what Orwell got right in 1984 and it even included things like deforestation and you know deg- degradation of the environment I mean there's a lot for the environmentalist I think in there and um, you know there, there are, and, I, mean, oh, he, I think also all also predicted the national lottery there was another thing I think he got right in there but no I mean obviously he's like any weekly journalist you know we've all done this he was capable of sort of saying things that were then proved to be completely wrong three months, six months later, so especially some of the uh, some of the war predictions in the wartime commentaries broadcast on the BBC's Eastern Service. I mean, they some of them are, you know, are, do do not do not pan out. But I mean, I've always found him a very reliable guide to the politics of the 1940s in terms of which side to trust, which was. Uh, you know, which was the authentic voice and which wasn't.
2: Well, well, the most valuable thing about him, and one of my favourite pieces by him, which doesn't normally get sort of anthologised, is this London letter he wrote for the Partisan Review in, I think, 44, where he goes over his predictions earlier in the war all the ones that were wrong and just explains all the ways he was wrong and says, and, and why he was wrong. Like, was he going along with the consensus view? Was he being misled by his own biases? And he goes, I think it's really important to do this, to own up to where, you know, when we've been wrong, rather than just sort of retrofit it to make us look like we were actually right. And there are so many, if I look at the culture of newspaper columns now, no, essentially nobody does this the whole thing is just to plough on regardless and it doesn't matter if you're wrong.
0: Yeah, that's right. He had to, he, after he'd had that, he'd had that, he had that conversation with Tosco Fivel finally, didn't he, about Revenge is sour. and Fivel pointed out to him that you, you've actually, you're prejudiced about this and you don't realise it. And after that, he spent the last five years of his life trying to make amends for this. And if you look at the manuscript of 1984, he actually goes through it, taking out potentially anti-Semitic remarks.
1: Well, in terms of that kind of be able to see something you didn't see first did was the spanish civil war important as a sort of big instance of that for him i mean you know going off to fight dedicated to anti-fascism suddenly turning around seeing what effectively his own side was turning into
0: oh i think that that to me is the is the is the crucial the crucial time early 1937 uh, because i mean he i mean he you know he said if you if you when he was sort of going around literary London saying goodbye to people at the end of 1936, it really was all couched in terms of terrible things. Great people, the Spanish, got to go out there and do something. And it took him until he got there. And he'd arrived, I think, with the intention of just writing some journalism at first. But it took, you know, revolutionary Barcelona to convince him that all this was worth fighting for. And then, as you say, um, within sort of two or three months, he began to see some of the imperfections, or rather, some of the dissensions and the fissures in the side he would fetched up on. Uh, but I mean, he went to Spain without, with knowing hardly anything of the situation, the background, who were the right people, who were the wrong, and had to sort of kind of make it up as he, i mean his whole approach to the spanish is incredibly rough and ready you're working things out as they were happening i
2: think i mean that's what gives this a great sort of moral force is that again it's like well if i believed that, that the fascists were uniquely bad and that the communists couldn't be that bad then it's sort of my job to sort of point out to other people what i've seen and then he starts sort of really trying to learn about totalitarianism and so again it's almost like it's it's his his strengths come from a very keen awareness of his weaknesses. It's like, how was I naive? How was I prejudiced? How was I wrong? And by sort of tackling that and trying to sort of think better, it's like Christopher Hitchens' line in Orwell, well says he doesn't teach you what to think, but how to think. And then he tries to convey that He tries to convey that to readers, many of whom, obviously, as in the case of uh, trying to tell people how bad Stalin was, uh, they weren't particularly keen on hearing it. I think and he also tries to see it from the point
0: of view of the ordinary person on the ground, which an awful lot of people weren't doing. I mean, one of the great points I think Orwell makes about the Spanish Civil War is the side you fought on largely depended on which part of Spain you lived in. Uh, And he also makes he also actually I think he actually says at one point that he could never he could never make a case for fascism. But he thought there was that many individual fascists actually had a point in the context of the Spain in which they lived, which is an extraordinary thing for a left wing democratic socialist who'd been shot through the throat by a fascist sniper to say um, (laughs) after, after he'd come home.
2: But that was the part of the contrarian bit, wasn't it? When he's writing about Hitler, he's sort of going... He's sort of perversely... Never brought been
0: able to bring myself to hate him. That's right. Never... I must put it on record, he says. And
2: they're writing about Gandhi going, oh, you know, even though he's a good man, I never really liked Gandhi, you know? And so there was this sort of... this this There was a sort of... Contra- the I think a good kind of contrarianism rather than the sort of cheap grifter style, but a genuinely, like... In order to sort of keep things... Into, it's like anybody can say how awful Hitler is. That's a given but let's try and understand why people are drawn to him. And he criticised, he read loads of books, about, reviewed loads of books about Nazi Germany. And he's just going, but you read these and you can't understand how anyone would support such a regime. And he says, I'm looking for somebody to, to explain to me why Hitler is actually popular if he's so awful. And so he's always kind of just trying to find the next, the next thought, you know, the, the bit that sort of goes beyond received wisdom without just being a kind of, you know, cheap provocateur. So, do you think if he were if he
1: were alive today, he'd be he'd be trying to find what's attractive about the Q shaman or Baked Alaska s- surging into the capital?
2: He'd be asking why. I think he'd always be asking why He goes. What what motivates them? Uh, I don't think he'd be a fan. I don't think he'd be Qanon believer. <laughs> well, I think unfortunately we're running out of time. But thank you
1: both no, very much indeed, Dorian Linsky, DJ Taylor, listeners. Go out and buy these men's books and then all those Orwell reissues. Thanks very much, both. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.